Friday night we looked at the whole idea of our freedom through sacrifice. This morning we're looking at just the, a sliver of the whole picture, and that is our freedom through forgiveness. I still would claim that we toss around a lot of terms like grace and mercy and forgiveness, and yet we, I think, barely scratch the surface sometimes in understanding the full weight of that. Until you have been really offended, uh, we think forgiveness is you know, not holding something against somebody who irritates us. We rarely get into the idea of forgiveness when someone has horribly sinned and offended us or done a moral injustice to us. One of the things that we are going to look at is I'm going to pair a couple of passages together, Ephesians chapter 2, 1 through 11, and Colossians chapter 2. Uh, the, the, the umbilical cord that links these two is this little phrase in the middle of both of the texts that literally talk about the ideas that when we were dead in our trespasses and sins, God made us alive together with Christ. And it becomes a leverage point for us to understand the magnitude of not only God's grace, but also the nature of forgiveness and how he saves us by grace. Forgiveness is not a simple little, well, God's going to ignore something. It isn't just sort of pushing it out of the way or whatever. The the very nature of forgiveness means that the, the cost of sin has to weigh into the equation. And often we are our best advocates in that we think that we're basically good. We understand a few of the things that we struggle with that may hurt other people. Uh, we are very much aware that if someone peeled back our, our chest and looked into our heart to see the clutter and the distraction and the sinfulness that rummages around in our mind and our spirit at times, we know that people wouldn't accept us because we just uh, like to hide those things. But there's no hiding from a holy God. And the reality is, unless we end up standing before him and we can say that we are righteous, then we are doomed to a Christless eternity. Without hope, without Christ, without God's grace, without being in the presence of a holy God. And so this morning I want to walk us through, in very general ways, Ephesians chapter 2 and Colossians chapter 2, to just kind of remind ourselves of the nature of Christ's death and resurrection is that God offers to us, among other things, that he forgives us for our debt. He rescues us from ourselves. And yet that's only the beginning of the journey. Ephesians chapter 2 begins this way. And you were dead in the trespasses and the sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. It's not a real positive way to start the day, but that's the reality of it. And, And then he goes on, and then as most pastors and preachers will say, one of the greatest words in this text is the word but. Because it says, but God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved and raised us up with him and seated us with him in heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus." 
For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own doing, it is a gift of God, not as a result of works that anyone should boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You know, one of the big struggles of our culture is just the idea of thinking we're basically good. And uh, we only measure that based on ourselves or comparing ourselves to other people. And when we do that, we always find people who are badder than us because that makes us feel better. But there's no such thing as the scriptures. It's pretty clear that from this text, there is a state of spiritual deadness that is the common factor in every human being that has lived and is living and will continue to exist throughout time and eternity. Well, the eternity part, maybe not, but time. When I, and before I step into the nuances of the text, I do want you to remind you, as we think about Easter this morning, about one of the final things that Jesus said when he was on the cross, just to kind of put a context to this, because one of the statements as he was being mocked and ridiculed and hung up on a, or this cross and brutalized in so many different ways was these remarkable words in Luke chapter 23 where Jesus said, Father, forgive them, they don't know what they're doing. Now we could spend a lifetime considering the implications of a statement where someone who is being crucified and butchered and spit upon and nailed to a cross would then actually have the audacity in our thinking to say, Father, forgive these ones who are treating me with such moral evil that instead of begging God to slaughter them all and to eliminate these horrible human beings who act so evil, that he says, Father, forgive them because they don't know what they're doing. If that doesn't get your attention, you need to hear the gospel. The gospel is that Christ, as we read in Isaiah, was butchered because of the sinfulness of our lives and humanity. He wasn't butchered because of his own sin. He was pure and clean and righteous and holy in every sense of the word. He was the perfect lamb of God slaughtered on our behalf. And yet in the midst of that kind of brutality, that incredible abuse, he is one who's who calls out to the Father, Father, forgive them. They don't know what they're doing. And to be quite honest, I still don't get it. It is beyond, I think, our comprehension as human beings. And the reason we know that is because we can have someone that will say something to us and tick us off, and we never forgive them. We'll avoid them like the plague. Some people are more sensitive to that than others. But to, to, to use this as the backdrop of what Paul is talking about in Ephesians 2 and Colossians is staggering. And even as Christians, we struggle with, or ought to probably struggle with the, the reality of what Christ says. Hung up between two thieves who clearly deserve punishment, who were butchered, and even one of them at some point ridicules Jesus to say, listen, if you're saying who you are, get us off of this thing. And Jesus was only good for him about what he could do for him and getting him out of his present predicament. That's who Jesus is to a lot of people. 
All that they want Jesus to do is get them out of their current circumstances, their current bad choices, their current predicament, but they don't see Jesus as the Lord and Lamb of God from heaven who needs to deal with the greatest predicament of their life, and that's their sin. And so as we wander through this, we need to understand that God has forgiven us a debt that we could never repay. And if I do nothing other than remind you of that, I feel like it's a success because the scriptures really can speak for themselves. But I want to come back and remind you briefly of our failure as human beings before God as you look at it. We are dead in our trespasses and sins in which you walked. We followed the course of this world. We followed the prince of the power of the air, which is likely a reference to Satan who is, the scriptures say, is the God of this world. He kind of holds sway over humanity. Doesn't mean everybody's demon-possessed. It doesn't have that sense of it. But he influences uh, this ongoing sense of personal self-reliance and rebellion against God. We don't need him. He's just a spiritual crutch. I can handle life on my own. I want to leave my own legacy. I control my own destiny. I don't need something like God. And all of humanity is, in a sense, is in this state of of being dead in our trespasses and sins. We live according to the passions of our flesh. We carry out the desires of the body and our mind. We are by nature children of wrath. That doesn't really sound like we're basically good. And one of the great deceptions of our, our world is that we think people are basically good. And it's simply not true if you rely on the scriptures to tell us anything. And if there's anything I can plead with you, if you have not come to that point in your life where you say, well, listen, I don't need Jesus, I think I'm basically good, is that that becomes a lie that's influenced by Satan, that he wants us to think that we don't have a need for our Savior. And as we begin to walk through this process, we need to come to the reality that Just the idea of following my own independent desires of what I want to do in life is often a reflection of I don't need God. And so as we walk through this, he tells us that we've got failure before him. We've got a problem when it comes to standing before God. I mean, this idea of Christ being crucified on Friday and raised on the the third day on on a Sunday or however you calculate that, is not some religious fairy tale. We're staking our very destiny in our lives on the reality that Christ is exactly who he said he is. And to, and to rebel against that, I believe, leaves a person without hope except for what they can manufacture for themselves. And so as we look at this reality, we see, first of all, this whole list of our failure as human beings, whether we think we're basically good or not. But then he comes back with this statement about what God does. In spite of even Romans telling us that we're ungodly and we're weak and we're enemies of God, in all of that, God, he says here, makes us alive together with Christ. Now, he's doing a big overview because he doesn't do that for everyone. In fact, John 3.16, one of the most basic and simplest verses in all of the scriptures, says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. But then he puts a condition on it. It doesn't mean God accepts everyone because he loves them. 
It's only if you believe in him you will not perish. And I have said this a time and many times, and I'm sure many of you are becoming nauseated by me saying it so many times. But we have to remember that God's love is not defined by the way we define love. We define love as that if you love me, then you accept me. God love says, as I loved you to the point that I sacrificed my own son. The issue isn't whether he accepts us because he doesn't accept any of us the way we are. It's only when we surrender to him and bow the knee before Christ and we receive him into our life that God then forgives us and removes us from his judgment and he adopts us into the family of God and gives us the righteousness of Christ and then we are accepted by God. But I don't believe the scriptures talk about universalism like just because Jesus died, now everybody is gonna get to go to a better place. And it is a horrendous risk to trust that. And so he follows this and says, we have been raised up with him and seated in heavenly places for those who've trusted Christ, that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in his kindness. And so as we walk through this, we, we, I want to get to the details, but I also want to link this to Colossians chapter 2, because it'll make a very similar statement. In fact, let me read it for you. You, and you, and there's a little bit of wording that's different, but it's the same thought. Who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh made you alive together with him. But then instead of saying in this particular text, for by grace you've been saved, you'll notice that he says that you have been forgiven all of your trespasses. And so the reason God makes us alive is because of God's forgiveness that he poured out his judgment upon his son, and we'll look at the details of that. But then he goes on, and he's going to explain that he makes us alive together with him because he forgives us all our trespasses. And then and when he gets to 13, he's, um, he, he really makes a statement by saying he's canceled the record of debt that stood against us with all of its legal demands, Then he set aside, nailing it to the cross, he disarmed the rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them. That's a wad of forgiveness. That's an enormous amount of things that God does for us in the act of forgiving. He not only removes us from his judgment, but he also changes some other things. The word forgiveness, and this is explained as being canceling our debt. Literally, it means to wipe something away. One of the great, uh, if you're looking at it literally, it's used in the most common way to wipe liquid off of a table or something. Revelation chapter 7, verse 17, is this great, wondrous text out of Revelation that says, For the Lamb in the midst of the throne will be their shepherd. And he will guide them to springs of living water. And God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. That's the the hope for all those who've put faith and trust in this Jesus who was butchered and crucified and raised on the third day. That in spite of all the suffering and the agony and the struggle of this life, we know that someday we are going to be, as it were, the city and the kingdom of God where Jesus himself will be that living sacrificial lamb who will shepherd us and take us to living waters and we will never shed tears again. 
We will never undergo the suffering and the agony and the hardship that this life affords. And so he's going to cancel, he's going to wipe away the debt that we owe him because of our transgressions. But you'll notice that it says it's a debt based on law. He set aside the record of debt and its legal demands. Now, it's very hard to know all the nuances of this, but it's basically internal and external. When you read through Romans, it's interesting that even those who don't care about God at all, God has created them in his image, so they have a conscience that can either affirm or condemn them of actions that they do, so they have a moral compass. And there's some day that people who think they're basically good that when they stand before God, God's gonna say, listen, even your own conscience condemned you of certain things that you did. And by rightfully being a righteous judge, we are condemned because we can't live perfectly. There's a, a ministry, and everybody has different feelings about ministries, name's Ray Comfort. He has this Living Waters ministry and he uses the Ten Commandments to, to have discussions with people. So listening to his discussions, and when he first came out a long time ago, he was kind of almost offensive. He'd get in people's face and all kinds of stuff. I listened to a little bit of some of his videos the other day and he's gotten way more respectful, which is pretty cool. But he talks to people and it basically says, you know, he'll run through the Ten Commandments and saying, have you ever taken the Lord's name in vain? Well, the people he interviews go, well, yeah, more than once, yeah. So you've taken his name, have you ever lied? You ever bear, bore false witness about something? Uh, I remember listening to one young man said, uh, yeah, too many times that I can count. And so his statement was, well, if someone lies like that, then what do you call them? Well, they're a liar. They go, well, yeah, I, I, I am, but I think I'm still basically good, he said. And then, of course, he talks about don't covet your neighbor's stuff and your wife. And he'll talk about, have you ever committed adultery? Because that's one of the Ten Commandments. They go, well, no, I haven't done that. And then he goes, well, Jesus kind of extenuated that to the idea that if you lust in your heart after a woman, have you ever done that? And of course, he turns all red and, you know, well, I'm a guy. And he says, so you're a lying adulterer and you know, all these other things. By your own admission, you've done all these things. And literally, he started sharing the gospel that, that, that Jesus is the one who paid the full debt of the penalty of you breaking not only the law of your own conscience, but God's moral law that we even see in the Old Testament. And, and that you've condemned yourself because even though you think you're basically good, you have a whole history in your life of lusting and lying and cheating and not bearing false, bearing false witness and being greedy and all kinds of things that basically condemn us. So the conversation shifts to, well, is that really that bad? I don't know, how bad do you need to get before you're not gonna be good? And the reality of the, of, of the picture here is, is not to devalue ourselves because we have infinite value as human beings because we're created in the image of God but we're not good, we're sinful, we're ungodly. We've suppressed the, the righteousness of God and exchanged the glory of God to create our own God and it, sometimes it's ourselves. That we worship things rather than him. 
We worship the creation rather than the creator. We set our own moral standard rather than submitting to what's right in God's eyes. And then have the audacity to say that we're good. And at the heart of this, he says, listen, you, there's a, if we were to pull out a whole grocery list of all the things that you've done wrong, it would be endless for all of us. And he, and he comes to him and he says, listen, whether you're talking about your conscience, whether you're talking about things inflicted on you, whether it's your choices, whether it's circumstances, regardless of what it is, God nailed it all to Christ on the cross. And you can know the deepest level of forgiveness that can transform the deepest areas of your being and your spirit and your heart if you're willing to surrender to God's gift of love. It's been legally canceled because God is the righteous judge. He has the right to cancel it and because Christ came and paid the debt in full, he can look at us and to put a human spin to it, Jesus says, listen, I, I paid all the sins and transgressions of Brad so you can accept him, Dad. And I look at Jesus and I go, that doesn't even begin to describe how unfair that is because I don't deserve it. And you'll run into lots of human beings who are on a journey to try to prove how good they are so they often beat themselves up. I'm a horrible, worthless individual. I'm never gonna be good enough. They'll never participate in humanity because I just don't measure up. I've had people tell me I'm worthless my entire life so I know that God won't accept me. But fortunately, God works on a whole different basis than you and I do. And he nailed the punishment that we deserve to Jesus and made him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf so that we might become the righteousness of Christ before God. And so he finishes this section off by talking about this idea that we've been raised up. To put it in the most elementary terms when he says we've been raised up and seated with Christ before God, it's like, He's made a reservation for us so that at the end of this life when we die, there's a seat waiting for us. I always love these times where you go to restaurants and you don't make a reservation and you get there and going like, it'll just be an hour and a half. Okay, well, we'll just have to go find a new restaurant because we'll, like, we'll all be dead by the time we get in here. But it's so cool to walk in and there's a lineup of 20 people and you walk up to the front and you say, hey, listen, it's Brad Little, I have a reservation. It'll be two minutes, sir, no problem. And it's gonna be so nice that when I pass from this life and I stand before the Lord, he's not gonna say, you got a reservation? He's already made it for me. Not because of my merits, not because I've done super special things for Jesus, but because I've surrendered to God through faith in Christ and I've acknowledged that I need more than anything else his forgiveness because I'm not good. And then he says, this is not a participation award. 
He says that God might show the immeasurable riches of his grace in kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. This is for his glory, not for my success. I get all these benefits and I get to enjoy all that God has done through Christ and and that can empower me to live a life that honors and glorifies him. But he's not doing it for my glory, he's doing it for his. That he might show how incredibly rich and generous that he is towards lost human beings. God's grace, that undeserved generosity of God that provides what is both necessary and sufficient for life and godliness. God's kindness is that quality of being helpful or beneficial. There's the understatement of the century. He redeems broken human beings that deserve his judgment and wrath and being eternally separated from him and the benefit we get because he slaughtered his own son and nailed our transgressions to his cross is that we get to enjoy him forever in his presence. I'd say that's a pretty good benefit. But sometimes we take those benefits for granted. Oh, I got saved, I can do anything I want now. God's good as a concierge to secure my spot in heaven, but he doesn't have the right to tell me how to live or who to care for or how to serve him. I'm still gonna be my own boss. I still get to determine where I'm going. And I just say that such arrogance also needs to be nailed to the cross. We live in a world where we are independently and corporately arrogant. And we treat God like a servant to help fix our temporal stuff with very little concern about serving his kingdom purpose. He's shown such immeasurable kindness. I can't even imagine what the least we should be doing in terms of all that he has done. And then he finishes off in verses eight to 10 really talking about the fact that we are his workmanship. He's gonna gonna reshape our lives and he's gonna work in our life through his spirit and the word of God and, and he's going to care for us and he's promised to always be with us and he's gonna shepherd us along and coach us so that we can live a life that reflects the character and the godliness and the and the righteousness of God. That when people look at our lives, they go, wait a minute, there's there's something different about the way you live and what you value and what you're doing in life that's different than mine. You handle conflict differently. You handle suffering differently. You handle people differently. There's something about what you're doing that's a breath of fresh air in the exhausting process of me trying to make myself better. And we ought to be this aroma of Christ that as we walk through Monday through Saturday and we touch people's lives, whether they're at work, that they see the the kindness and the riches of God's grace flowing in our life and out to others so that they might taste the immeasurable riches and love of a God who cares about them. I uh, watched a documentary this morning. I get up early. But it was about 52 years ago to this day that Apollo 13 landed safely back on Earth. 
It was a remarkable experience and probably one of the most crisis-driven moments in American history in some respects that they launched on April the 11th, 1970, two days later on April the 13th. They had a severe malfunction where their systems blew apart all over the place and created catastrophic failure in terms of their electrical system, their energy, their air supply. I mean, they basically were doomed to die. And it was at that time when that oxygen tank blew up that Swigert had reported back to Mission Control, Houston, we have a problem. It was probably one of the biggest understatements of the entire mission. They lost their heaters, they lost their electrical, they were losing their oxygen, and they made, uh, in a sense, a desperate plea for someone to help rescue them. And they pulled every brilliant genius they could at NASA together and worked endlessly to try to figure this out. When you watch the movie, I remember the, the, I forgot his name, the director, whatever, they were trying to understand what was going on. And at least in the movie, I don't know the real life thing, he says, you know, everyone was despairing and what are we gonna do? And the logistical problem solving was literally off the charts. And he spoke up in the middle of the meeting and he said, listen, this could be our finest hour. Failure is not an option. And they went to work. And they put whatever creative plan they could and they kept working at the problem and they worked the problem and they did everything they conceivably could and it was literally a miracle that they were able to pull that together and these men, after four over four minutes in darkness coming through the atmosphere, which is way longer than it should have been, all of a sudden they heard their voices saying, Houston, we're here. And as I, I thought about that, they called it the, the most successful failure they'd ever had because they had their plans. They were going to land on the moon. They were going to make a successful landing and, and sort of be the first ones there, as it were. And they were barely able to get out by their lives. When Adam and Eve sinned, the basic SOS beacon that went back to God is, God, we have a problem. And there's no way that they could fix it. We can fix it on our own. We have to stop deceiving ourselves that if we just work harder and fix more things, that life will be better. I can guarantee you that you could create the greatest paradise on earth and still be in hell because you haven't fixed your sin problem. And so God went to work because God said, failure's not an option here. And when humanity is at its its worst and it's in its greatest predicament and it's at its greatest point of failure that they can never fix, God went to work by sending his own son. And it wasn't because of anything we did, but God made this declaration that failure is not an option. But it took the sacrifice of his own son to path pave the way back into relationship with God. And so hope is possible. The greatest miracle was in Apollo 13. 
The greatest miracle on this earth is when an individual realizes their need for forgiveness and they turn to Christ and ask him to forgive their sins. And God, in all of his generosity and all the riches of his grace, will remove that person from judgment, declare them not guilty, and he has the legal right to do it. He gives them the righteousness of God, and then he adopts them into the family and says, not only do I love you, but now I accept you as a child of God, and I will never leave or forsake you. I remember as I was reading and listening to the documentary, the narrator at the end of it said this, no matter what the challenge, mankind has the ability to rise to the occasion. Well, lots of things we do. But I plead with you, based on what I read in the scriptures, that this is a problem you can't rise to. You can't fix it. Only Christ and surrendering to him can fix the deepest need of your life and change the trajectory from a Christless eternity to being forever in the presence of the Lamb of God who will allow us to drink living water and to celebrate his glory and all the riches of his grace forever and ever and ever. Are you and I going to live that way? Or is it just a verbal affectation that we talk about a living Savior, but we're failing to live for him? Father, the greatest miraculous event in our lives isn't Apollo 13 or other things, it's the sacrifice of your son. Where he was butchered and abused and suffered a horrible death, even where he cried out to you, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Only to be raised on the third day so that we might have life in Christ that we might be transferred from death into life. Father, I pray that if there's anyone here, or anyone listening that has never really come to the clear reality that Christ died for them, I pray your spirit will imprint that deep upon their heart and soul. That they might know, if nothing else, how deeply you love them. And you offer them this free gift of life because the wages of our sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so Father, it's really a simple expression of the heart. God, I don't know all the details and I don't know all that it means, but I know that I'm a sinner and I want you to forgive my sin and make me a child of God and I wanna live my life for your glory. May that be true of every one of us. In Christ's name, amen.